Ronald Wayne was actually um, a chap that back in 1976, he formed a small technology company along with two of his friends, uh, one called Stephen Jobs and the other called Stephen Wozniak, um, which they set a small company called Apple Computers up, which has got to quite a large size now. However, just two weeks after they set that company up, our friend Ronald Wayne had cold feet, worrying that it would come to nothing. And so he sold his share in the company. There were three shareholders at the time. And he sold it to the other two Steves for the grand sum of £500. He made a decision that he would regret for the rest of his life. It's hard to think of an example of a bigger opportunity miss than this. Uh, but in today's passage, we're going to look at the greatest opportunity there is. Um, so tonight, we're going to look at two amazingly strong passages from Luke 13. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the first passage, and then we're going to consider what it means, and then we're going to do the same for the second passage. Uh, and so Pete's going to do that. The first passage is Luke 13, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 9. That can be found on page 1046 of the Church Bibles. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, Luke 13, verse 1. The helpful heading, repent or perish. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pete. Um, now, it'd help if you kept your Bibles open, if you could. That's page 1046. And within your notice sheet, there is a summary of the structure of my talk to give you an idea of where I'm going. And there are also uh, many Bible references on there uh, to show you the ones I'm using. So within the passage that we've just read, there are really two sections, one to five and six to nine. So first we're going to consider the verses one to five. Jesus references here two events that would have made the six o'clock news of the day different from each other, but both events would have had everyone talking about them in Jerusalem. Both of these events are mentioned only here in this chapter of the Bible, and both are tragedies in their own way. The first one is outrageous. A group of pilgrims have travelled from the shores of Lake Galilee in the north of the country. They came to worship and to sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. As they sacrificed, Pilate had them killed, 
And there is this macabre image detailed in the scripture of their own blood mingled and flowing with the blood of the animals that they had sacrificed. We don't know why Pilate would have done this. Maybe to show his power, but for whatever reason, it would have terrified all Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then we have this terrible second incident, which seems to have been a building accident, where the Tower of Siloam, again in Jerusalem, falls down and crushes to death 18 people. Just like so many people now, and also as part of our press, people were questioning, why should such a thing happen to these people in particular? Did these people bring it on themselves? Did they deserve it? Was there something in their past that brought this onto themselves? What evil had they done to warrant this? Jesus challenges this way of thinking head on and uses the occasion to hammer home a key message. To both incidents, Jesus says, Jesus asks, do you think that these were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered this way? And he answers with a definitive no for both the Galileans and those killed by the collapse of the tower. This was no sort of accident, no sort of punishment. Sometimes we can fall into this trap ourselves of even subconsciously thinking that bad things happen to bad people. And therefore we ask ourselves, so if this bad thing has happened, what have they done that was bad? This is exactly what Jesus is debunking here. There's even a phrase that we use in, in English, the sun shines on the righteous. Have you heard this phrase? This is actually taken from the Bible, but it is a misquote. The phrase comes from just part of Matthew 5, 45, where the whole verse is this. Listen carefully. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So the result of natural phenomena is not generally to do with our status with God. Christians and non-Christians alike are affected in disasters or flooding or in who contracts illness or who doesn't. We are all affected. But as Christians, it's how we respond to these bad things that matter. It's how we respond that makes it count. How at these times we turn to God, not away, seeking him even more. But Jesus uses this situation to talk about something much more important and brings the focus of attention from others onto each one of us. Much more important, actually, is not how or when we die, but rather what's the state of our relationship with God when we do. Jesus uses these same identical words twice and addresses each individual in the crowd and also us tonight when he says, but unless you repent, you too will also perish. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. If we haven't repented and asked Jesus to be Lord of our lives, then we will perish when we die. We know from other scriptures that we will be judged. At that time, one of two things could happen. Number one, if we are saved by our repentance and our accepting of Jesus as our Lord, we will be judged as if we have no sin because all of our sin has been forgiven and paid for by Jesus on the cross. Or secondly, alternatively, if we haven't accepted Christ, then we will be judged on our own merit. 
And if we have found to have sinned, we will perish and not be saved. And as Paul challenges us in Romans 3, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. It couldn't be plainer. As we are sinners, without us repenting and being forgiven by Christ, we will perish. The rest of this passage compares each of us with a fig tree that has been planted in good soil and yet still hasn't produced fruit, hasn't responded to the good soil, the good news of Jesus. This is like us not responding to God's call on our lives yet. God is a patient father, and there's a lovely moment in verse 8 where it is decided that the fig tree will be given one more year, another chance. So there is time. God is patient. The disciple Peter writes in his second letter, chapter 3, the Lord is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There is time now, but for how long? Time will run out, and then that will be it. We have no idea when that will be up, when we die. Back in Jerusalem on that morning of those tragedies, I imagine those pilgrims from Galilee, or certainly those 18 who ended up under the Tower of Siloam, they had no idea that that day would end as it did. So the question is, if it happened right now, if this church roof collapsed on us and we all died, it won't, will it, John? (laughs) Um, Are we ready to meet our maker? We'll look more at that in our second passage. So how should we respond to Jesus? The next passage tells us more. So let's now listen again to Pete as he reads from verse 22 through to 30. Okay, Luke 13, verse 22, the narrow door. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and taught in our, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pete, again. So the first thing to note in this passage is uh, the context. What is Jesus doing in verse 22? He's purposefully traveling through the towns and the villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. A journey that he would, would have been so he would have been so conscious of and the significance of his journey to Jerusalem. 
He was heading for what he knew was going to happen. There's a sense of urgency and finality here. On the way, someone asks Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Let's think first. Why would someone ask that question of Jesus? Well, Jews at that time had a belief, although not founded in Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And this belief was that almost all of Israel was going to be saved, spar a very few exceptions of people who had committed absolutely dreadful crimes. But they believed the vast majority would be saved. And yet Jesus now is shaking that confidence up with words like those passages, the passage we've just heard, the first passage, and also many others. Maybe the person asking was just starting to worry that it wasn't going to happen just automatically. Maybe the questioner is really wanting to ask, if it's not everybody, how do I make sure that I'm one of the saved ones? This is a key question. What determines someone's salvation? Or much more personally, what determines my salvation? And this, in fact, is the question that Jesus answers. Like so many, Jesus makes this personal, directly addressing each of them and addressing us today when he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the, owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. So what is this narrow gate? Jesus explained what it is in John verse 9, where he said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus is the gate to salvation, to the Father. So entering through the gate is knowing him, accepting him as Lord, and following him. There are three things I want to highlight about this narrow gate, the route to salvation. Firstly, that it's singular. There's only one gate. There is only one way to God, only one, and that is Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, very famous verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only way to salvation. Secondly, that this way is narrow, meaning that it is difficult to get through, but it is so worth it. This phrase that our Bible translates as make every effort is actually one single Greek word. Uh, excuse my, it's agonizme, <laughs> from which we get the word agonize. You can see that. This is the word that the Greeks actually use to describe the passion that athletes have for pushing themselves hard during training, agonize, and then the com competition to win the prize that's deep on their heart. So Jesus says, agonize uh, to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort. Jesus is saying, strive for, passionately seek for it with an intensity of passion that, earnestly, that you earnestly want him. The third point is that there will come a time when that gate is shut. It's not going to be open forever. Verse 25 is very clear. The time will come when the owner, that's God, will shut the door. There will be a time when salvation is no longer offered, the door is shut, and it will be time for judgment. Now in Matthew 7, Jesus compares the narrow gate with the alternative, the broad gate. 
when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Three things to call out here. Um, Firstly, that the broad gate is easy. It's a path that's easy to find yourself on, maybe even by accident, without thinking about. It's too easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we live a good life compared to others, maybe. We're not that bad. Um, I'm sure that those stuck on the other side of the door in this story would have thought the same. Notice their evidence that they provide to the owner of the house for why they should be let in. We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. These things aren't difficult. We turned up, we ate and drank, we listened, but we did not act, we did not respond. This is not saying we repented. It is not saying we earnestly saw that we needed to repent and have you to be Lord of our life, to have a personal racial relationship with you, Christ. Rather, it's saying we were loosely connected to you, we liked your company, We spent time with you, and we even listened to your teaching. This really isn't saying that much. So how are we challenged by this? Well, if we're here and have not made a commitment to him, if you haven't repented and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this is a wake-up call for you. You may have been here just a few weeks or several months or many years. Perhaps you love being here. You love the music, the friendliness, the teaching, and that's great. But if this has never really led to the realization that you personally need to be right with Jesus, then you need that you need him in your life. This is what Jesus wants, to have this personal relationship with him. And this, so many people here I know can testify of this personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus personally changes your life in such a wonderful way. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. How great to have a forgiven, purposeful, beloved life. Secondly, notice the difference in the degree of effort in going through the gate. Jesus says that we should agonize to go through the narrow gate. And he compares this with the many that just try and then fail. To half-heartedly try is not enough. We should agonize and want him. Agonize all encompasses that we should have passion for him in all of our lives at all time. Following Jesus isn't just something we do when we're at church or with certain groups of people. Following Jesus is not a part-time activity. There's an Apple store at the top of Fifth Avenue in New York uh, that's open every hour of every day of every year. Uh, I know I've been in there at 4 a.m. being jet-lagged once. Um, They advertise it as not as 24-7, but as 24-365. There is no time off from following Jesus. To continue the Apple analogy, following Jesus is not like having an app on your phone. He is the operating system itself. Without it, nothing works properly. The operating system works all the time and can be relied upon and is fundamental for the good running of all apps. Hopefully that hasn't lost too many people. (laughs) 
This is what Jesus is looking for. He wants to be involved in all aspects of our our life, to bring us life in its fullest. Christianity isn't designed as an add-on to an already busy life. It's life itself, and it should affect everything in our life. And that's when the gate gets really narrow, because no part of our life should be untouched. Our home life, our time with our friends, our time at work or college, our time on our own. No part of your life should be kept away from a relationship with him. There is no private part that he doesn't see. And maybe that's what you need to hear today. Is there some part of your life that you're trying to keep separate from him? Or are we 24365 Christians? And lastly, the result of taking the broad gate is bluntly expressed here. On that day of judgment, we stand in front of Jesus. And if we've taken the broad gate, he will say, as in verse 25, I don't know you. So we've seen that not everyone will choose the narrow gate. Not everyone will be saved. But also the opportunity is limited as time will run out. We have limited lives and one day we will die or Christ will come again in our lifetime. I was touched this week by the death of unionist Bob Crow. Bob Crow died at the age of 52, just three years older than I am. Whatever you think of his politics, he has totally unexpectedly left behind a partner, Nicola, and a son and three daughters. What touched me was how suddenly he died, a heart attack with no warning. Although we rarely think of it for ourselves in this term, but life is so fragile, it could end at any point. If you hear his voice today and reject his call, or think that you can put it off to some later time, then there is no guarantee that there will be another time. I don't want to scare you into anything, but I do want you to take this very, very seriously. So to finish, there is no better time than now to respond to his call to repent. After this talk, there will be a time to either just talk with somebody over here, or if you'd like to pray. But if you just want to talk, that's just fine. And can I please uh, ask you to not leave without talking with somebody if you've been touched by something you've heard today. God bless you.